0: My name's also Pete, in fact Joel's the only one who ever refers to me as Peter, but that's interesting. Um, I apologise, my voice sounds a bit like Darren Lockyer in a post-match interview. I've had a cold for a week and um, we'll just see how it goes tonight, hopefully i make it through. Um, special welcome to all the visitors here tonight, it's really great to see um, so many people here, to, um, to be here for this special occasion, lots of familiar faces actually. I had the um, privilege of being in the bridal party for Dan, uh, for Dan. Oh, also for Dan. I think, no, Um, for um, uh, Brad and Tree and um, yeah, it's been great to see them, you know, become husbands and now become fathers and to stand up here today and and make these uh, commitments. It's really great and it's an honour to be here. It's a coincidence actually, I only really preach once a year and it happened to be tonight and um, yeah, it's really great to be here. Um, If you're new to church... Um, one, of our, one of our core convictions is that reading the Bible and, and listening to the Bible is how we're changed and how we're informed. Um, and so each week at church, we dedicate a bit of time to that, to reading the Bible and listening to it, delving into it. Um, we believe that that's how God changes us and influences us and how we, how we learn what it's, what it's like to follow him. Uh, and that's what we're about to do tonight with that story that was just read out um, a moment ago by Pete. And... Um, my um, invitation to you if you're not someone who normally goes to church is just to listen in listen in to us as we as we do that as we um, delve into the bible uh, maybe you'll find it interesting it's a pretty interesting story tonight actually uh, maybe you'll be challenged maybe you'll disagree um, but my invitation is to listen in on that there will be a question time at the end um, there'll be a number it comes up on the screen i think it might up yeah it's up there now feel free to text any questions to that and i'll have a crack at answering them afterwards we'll see how i go um let me pray as we kick off tonight. Heavenly Father, thanks that we can be at church. Thanks for Brad and Amy and Tree and Beck and for the, uh, the new lives that you've granted to them and for this celebration of that and for the dedication that they've made tonight to, to be good parents and parents that trust in you. We pray now as we look at the Bible that you will help me to speak clearly and uh, that you help my voice to last out And we pray that you will help all of us to have open hearts, to be ready to listen to what you're saying. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Um, Well, tonight's story starts in pretty um, desperate circumstances, to be honest. Um, And if you've been following along uh, the last couple of weeks at church, you'll be following the story of Israel. And as the curtain lifts tonight, we find ourselves... Um, we find the nation of Israel who are newly settled in their promised land. We're talking about 1200, 1300 BC is roughly the time period here. It's hard to date it exactly. But at this point in their history, Israel has just settled into the promised land or the holy land as we might call it now. You would have noticed Gaza got a mention there in the opening, uh, which is still a name that we know of today and we know where Gaza is. So Israel have freshly settled in this land a couple hundred years earlier and they find themselves oppressed in tonight's story, by two foreign nations. Uh, the two nations are the Midianites and the Amalekites. We know a little bit, a little bit about each of them. The Midianites were descended from uh, Abraham's, one of Abraham's illegitimate sons and the Amalekites were descended from one of Esau's grandsons. And they've historically been enemies of Israel. They've fought battles with them previously. But in this story they're really um, turning the screws on Israel. Uh, and I want to try and paint a picture for you of what, what that would be like. We find it hard, I think, in a First World country to appreciate the, the sort of desperation that Israel would have been experiencing at this time. I've actually got a fair bit of family who are farmers on both sides of my family. And um, I think even in today's age, in the modern era, it's difficult to be a farmer. And it, and it takes someone of resilience to be a farmer. Um, you, you basically are depending on the weather, to have a profit, and I remember once one of my uncles telling me that after a year of farming in, in the middle of the drought about 15 years ago, he said that the money he had made from selling his milk was equal to the amount of money he'd spent on hay to feed his cows, and so every other cost that he'd incurred that year was a loss. And that, that might happen for 10 years in a row, and then you have a good year finally, and you make some money back. And it's really difficult being a farmer, even in this age of machinery and government subsidies. It's really it's quite difficult to be a farmer. It would have been even more difficult, and I want you to try and put your uh, imagination to work here, to be a farmer in the time of Gideon. That's much more of a subsistence uh, scenario where you eat what you grow. Uh, If you don't have a good season, you go hungry. Your kids go hungry. If your cattle get a disease and die, you don't have milk. If your sheep get a disease and die, you don't have wool. That's only in rare circumstances you would consider killing one of your livestock, a special occasion maybe, to celebrate something, would you even consider eating one of these animals? And so I want you to imagine that, um, you know, you plant your crops, you pray for a good harvest, the harvest comes as a reasonable harvest, you've got some, a, a reasonable flock of um, sheep, you've got some, a reasonable amount of um, oxen, which are the tractors of the day, and just as harvest comes, these two foreign nations come in and they take all the grain and they take all the livestock and they leave and I think at that point you would be you would be wondering do I have enough food to even feed my family for the next season until next harvest do I have enough grain left to plant it so that I can have a harvest the year after do I have any animals left that I can breed and, and regrow my um, stock up to a good number and then imagine the next year you've scraped it together, it happens again, you've managed to make it through a year and again these two nations come and take everything. And again and again, for six years, for seven years, these two foreign nations come and do that. And you'll notice there that the uh, the summary of all of this is that they are so impoverished. And you can imagine it. Nothing to eat, nothing to plant, no animals to help them uh, on their farm, no oxen to pull the plough. This is a, a, a quite a dire... Um, desperate scene and that's the that's the scene of our story tonight Um, it's a scene uh, of people living in the hills hiding in caves and in this desperation the people cry out to god in verse six they cry out to god and they they cry out to him for help and the question tonight is what will god do what will god do how will god act what will he do into this scenario of great oppression and I want to briefly look at three things that God does briefly look at three things and then at the end ask what does it mean so the first thing that God does and it is a bit unexpected to be honest he sends a prophet Um, and it's a bit unexpected I think because how is a prophet going to help you know is the prophet going to introduce new agricultural techniques um, or are they going to offer military advice or diplomatic advice on how, how to appease these foreign nations? And the answer is no, the prophet's really just here to talk about the problem. And I think as Australians we have a, like a, a bias against this sort of thing, you know. We, we don't like people just talking about problems and not fixing problems. Um, you only have to go to professional development to feel this way, I think. I often feel this way in professional development. Why are we talking about everything? Why don't we just go and do it? And we've got to shelve that as we come to this part of the story. Because what the prophet says is actually crucial uh, to the narrative and we must understand what he's saying. Now, it's actually crucial that the the prophet shares his message and talks about the problem. And if I was to summarise the message of the prophet, it would be something like this. It's your fault. It's a fairly unpopular message. I wouldn't have wanted to be that prophet. Um, He says to the people in their suffering, in their hunger, in their starvation, it's your fault. Uh, And he reminds Israel of the way that God has saved and helped helped them in previous times. So he reminds them of when God helps them to escape from being slaves in Egypt in verse 8. He reminds them in verse 9 that he delivered them from the Egyptians when they were chased by them and from all the other enemies. And he reminds them that the land they're living in now was won, the victories were won there with God's help. And so the problem's not God. It's not like God has lost his um, ability to defeat or help wars be won. It's not God's fault. Rather, it's the fault of the Israelites. And the prophet also explains this. He says, in verse 10, that God had made a covenant. Now, a covenant is like a two-sided promise, where both people promise something. And as God had promised that he would save Israel, look after them, help them from their enemies, deliver them, and con- conversely, the Israelites would follow him and not worship other gods. But continuously, the, the Israelites go back on their side of the promise. They exchange the worship of God for the worship of Baal. Um, and the worship of Baal, as we've mentioned in previous week, involved child sacrifice. They, they exchange the worship of God the worship of Ashtara, which involved ritual prostitution and the oppression of women. And so the people of Israel are repeatedly straying away from God and breaking their side of the covenant. And God lets, he removes the protection and allows the enemies uh, to defeat Israel each time. And it's a cycle. If you've been here the last five last couple of weeks, this is the fifth time in a row that this exact thing has happened, right? It's the fifth time. And so the message of the prophet is really actually quite crucial because the problem with Israel, while there is an economic and military problem, the actual problem, the real root problem is a spiritual one. And so it's crucial that the prophet comes and delivers that message because otherwise this this cycle of... um, Rebelling against God, being enslaved, being saved, all good for a bit, rebelling against God, the cycle which is already repeated four times in the in the series that we've been doing the last couple of weeks, that cycle will continue. What we need is not deliverance from the Midianites, what we need is a spiritual revolution so that the people don't turn away from God. And it's, it's an um, ironic reversal, really, of... Um, of the time in egypt i don 't know if you picked up on that um, phrase that was in the first bit like a lo- like locusts. Um, you might remember back to the plagues of Egypt, one of the plagues was locusts and it 's an ironic reversal that now just as just as uh, God had saved Israel with plagues of locusts now Israel are no longer protected by God, and, and waves of locusts of enemies are coming against them it 's sort of an ironic changing of the situation, and it doesn 't take long for the worship of chapter 5 to turn into the waywardness of chapter 6. This spiral, this continual change, the fickleness of the nation of Israel. And so this is a much-needed message from the prophet. In other parts of the Bible, God actually refers to this, this type of thing, a bit like a relationship between a husband and a wife. And he talks about the sadness of watching Israel chase other gods like the sadness of a husband watching his wife pursue the love of other men. And so thinking about it in those terms, it's like this is the fifth time Israel has tried to divorce God and ask for him back again. And that is the reason that the prophet comes and shares this message. It's not as simple as oppression saving, oppression saving. There's a deeper problem here, which is the people are not being faithful to God the turning away from him. And I think we're meant to be wondering at the end of this, uh, like, has God had enough? Is he going to rescue his people for the fifth time? Is he going to take them back for the fifth time after they've tried to reject him and ask for him back? Would you take someone back after five times like that? The prophet's message doesn't finish with what he's going to do. It finishes with a sort of a pronouncement of judgment that you've done this wrong thing. So I think we're left wondering... Yeah, fair enough. You know, is God going to rescue his people or has he had, had enough? Which leads me to the second thing. So the first thing God did was to send a prophet. The second thing that God does is he recruits Gideon, this bloke Gideon. Now, um, this is a pretty interesting um, uh, little story about how that happens. There are some details at the start which maybe you don't um, you you wondered about. First of all, there's what, what is Gideon doing when this happens? Well, he's in a wine press. Um, threshing grain as an interesting uh, thing to be doing. Wine press uh, is a place where you would stand on grapes and squash them to make wine. If you've uh, watched The Bachelorette recently, you may be familiar with what we're talking about here. Um, and threshing of, of wheat or grain is something that's best done outside with a bit of a breeze. The idea is that you're separating the grains from the rest of the plant okay, and so you sort of throw it up in the air and the wind blows away the lighter part of the plant which you don't want, the chaff actually, and then the rest of the grain falls back down and you keep it. Now you can imagine that's quite difficult to do inside in a wine press. And why is that happening? Because of the, the incoming raids of the Midianites. They're trying to keep it secret that they've got some grain. The other interesting detail actually um, is that when the angel of the Lord appears, and there's a bit of a play, play going on here with, with us as the audience, we know that the, this guy is God, but Gideon doesn't at the start. It takes him a while to realise. It's a bit of a thing that will we'll, um, follow through the story. But it's interesting. This guy comes and sits under a tree, and you might think, yeah, it makes sense, it's probably shady. Um, but there's a bit of significance to this. Uh, in, in the Hebrew, this word is the tree. It's, 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 um, you know, it's the tree, it's not a tree. And it's likely that this is the tree that uh, Gideon's father, who was an important local guy, would sit under as he judged the local people, as he settled their disputes. Just like last week, Deborah was someone who had a tree that she sat under to judge disputes. And so there's a bit of symbolism in the fact that this angel of the Lord comes and sits under the tree. And it's maybe maybe ushering in a time where the people will be judged and follow God Um And so there's a few little details at the start and we see that um there's quite an interesting interaction between the angel of the lord and gideon he comes and he says something along the lines of and i'll um, read it to you in verse 12 the lord is with you mighty warrior Um, and there's an amusing sort of repetition of pardon me my lord which you may have picked up on as pete read it for us earlier And in that first statement, the angel of the Lord sort of says two things to him first of all, the Lord is with you, and second of all, mighty warrior. And Gideon doesn't want a bar of either of those statements if you look at how he replies. He first of all comes back with, you know, God's not really with us. Look at the Midianites, look at our impoverishment. Is the Lord really with us? It's a surprising response, I think, because this is God's like chosen leader, this is the guy God's recruiting to, to solve the problem. And really he gives the type of response that Peter Fitzsimons might give in the, Sunday tele- uh, in the Sydney Morning Herald, right? It's a very atheistic sort of, um, well, God's not here, God's not helping, look at, look at the troubles that we're facing. You know, this guy Gideon is not a particularly holy man, he's not an astute theologian who's understanding the, the true cause of the problems they're facing. That's interesting, I think, to first notice. It. The angel of the Lord's not put off by this statement, and you might imagine if that was God, well, it is God, you might imagine becoming frustrated or angry at, at um, Gideon, saying, well, why, you know, how dare you speak to me like this? But the angel of the Lord is qu- quite patient and persists. And, and Gideon comes back, has to come back again and say, well, actually, I'm not a very important person. He says, you know, I'm, my, I'm not very important in my father's family. My father's family is not that important. And he's from the tribe of Manasseh, which is only really half a tribe. And so he's he's saying, I'm not a very important person. So I'm not the man for the job. But still, the angel of the Lord is not uh, to be uh, denied. And here is the point in the story, actually, where the angel of the Lord becomes quite obvious and overt in that he is God. If you look at it, instead of saying, the Lord will be with you, as he has said previously, we now get the angel of the Lord saying, I will be with you. And so it becomes obvious, more obvious to Gideon that he might be talking to God. And this uh, caused a change in reaction from Gideon. He stops, he stops speaking in sort of polite terms to a senior man and starts talking in much more deferential terms. And then this sort of weird thing happens where he, he wants to go and cook a meal. Okay, I don't know if you guys wondered about that when you read it. Why is he cooking a meal at this point? Uh, and he cooks quite a large meal, actually. Um, The the quantity of flour mentioned here is about 22 litres. Um, So you can imagine cooking bread with 22 litres of flour. Uh, And he kills um, a goat, I think it is, and and brings it and feeds that to him as well. First thing to point out, in a time of of, uh, famine, this is is an extravagant display. In a time where there's no food for anyone, this is extravagant. And he brings his massive meal out also, consider it would have taken probably hours to make. The guy's been waiting. I hate waiting. I think this is great patience on the behalf of God to say, okay, I'll wait for you to cook this meal for me. Uh, and the guy brings the meal out and puts it on the rock as instructed. Uh, and what's going on? I think we sort of wonder at the, uh, you know, we followed the story up to this point, but now we wonder what, you know, what's going on here. And I, I think it, part of the, the reason we ask that question is because we're not Jewish Um, and this was written by a Jewish author for a Jewish audience, and looking at it in those terms, there is some very clear sort of um, imagery going on here, and it's actually um, that Gideon's recruitment, if I can put it that way, is following the pattern of Moses' recruitment. There are uncanny similarities between the two, Um, and it's quite an important thing to realise about the story of Gideon. At the end of Gideon's life, actually, they try and make him uh, the king, and say, can your family rule over us forever? And it's, it's an unusual thing. The other judges didn't have that. And part of the reason for that is that they're seeing Gideon as like a new Moses. There are heaps of similarities. I'm just going to read a few of them out for you. But both were recruited while working and hiding in the wilderness from the enemy. Both were recruited face-to-face by God uh, in a pagan context. They both get told the same Hebrew word, which means, I have sent you. They both protest inadequacy for their role uh, and God doesn't listen. Um, They both experience unnatural fire as a sign and they both respond with fear. They both maintain continued dialogue with God afterwards and they're both associated actually with the defeat of Midian and the Amalekites. In fact, that famous battle where Moses holds the staff above his head is against the Amalekites. And so there's all these parallels which a Jewish audience would be picking up on here and we're just sort of like, why is he cooking a meal? okay and that's the reason right it's following a similar path and so when Gideon starts to the inkling starts to fall on him that maybe this is God his mind goes to Moses and what happened to Moses and he remembers the burning bush and so on and so he cooks this meal and brings out such a massive meal it's almost inviting a reaction and places it on the rock Uh, and God gives him the sign uh, that that he has indeed been talking to God and that this mission is not optional um now, I do feel like I just uh, want to put a bit of a parenthesis in here. Um, I always do this, so apologies if you've heard me do this before. Um, I've got a physics degree, and I often feel like when um, I'm talking about miraculous things like bushes on fire and um, that, that someone in the audience is probably thinking, you know, does he not believe in science or something like that? And I just, I just want to point out um, quite simply that if <coughs> excuse me, if, if you believe that there is no God, the logical consequence is that there are no miracles that's logic that's logical but if you believe in that there is a god who made the universe and who who made nature then it's logical that that god could alter nature from time to time that's actually logical and so the different so miracles are neither logical nor illogical they're just they're both a consequence of whether you believe in whether god exists or not so end of parenthesis let's come back to this um, the interesting response here from um, Gideon is fear. After all this, so the the, the the food catches on fire, the, the guy disappears, and uh, Gideon is afraid, which is a natural response. I think I would be afraid if I had realised I'd just been talking with God and I'd made him wait five hours while I cooked a meal. Okay, I think uh, it's a natural response. But God um, says to him, "Shalom, don't be afraid." He gives him uh, a word of encouragement there. And in response, Gideon builds a little altar to the true God. And this is the beginning of the of the restoration of Israel. It's the first seed of something positive happening. And I guess before I move on, I just want to pause and point out the unlikely choice of Gideon. He's not a particularly uh, astute theologian. He's not a particularly godly person. He's not um, a particularly brave person either and yet God chooses this guy to be the leader and the rescuer of his people. Uh, and last week Joel actually spoke on how God wants us to get involved and, and not to just uh, sit on the side of the Christian life and watch other people do things, but to get involved and to be active, to get in the game, I think, to choose an analogy that Joel, Joel uh, used last week. And I think maybe one of the reasons we don't do that is because we feel inadequate. We feel like some other people will be better at it than us or some other people are more switched on than us. Some people are more, more gifted or um, they're stronger Christians. And I think it's encouraging to see a story like this. Jesus does exactly the same thing in the New Testament, actually. When Jesus is choosing his 12 guys, the 12 guys will become the leaders of the church he doesn't choose the most influential rabbis, the most knowledgeable teachers of the law. He chooses fishermen. who probably dropped out of school and can't read or write. That's a very questionable decision if you were just looking at it from a human perspective, how can I start a new religion or who should I pick? Twelve fishermen, no, they, weren't all, they weren't all fishermen, but fishermen is not an obvious choice. It's encouraging that who God chooses... To be, to be a part of the work is often the ordinary person. And so I want to encourage you tonight, if you if you've felt the challenge last week with Joel saying, get involved in things, be an active member of the church, and maybe your hesitation was that you're not gifted enough or you're not mature enough or something like that, look at Gideon, someone who didn't even understand what the spiritual state of the nation was, someone who's very timid. Same with Moses, same with the disciples, ordinary people. And in the same way that while Gideon was threshing, God turned him into a thresher of men. Peter was fishing, God turned him into a fisher of men. So God can take you and me, ordinary people, and turn us into uh, extraordinary workers in his kingdom. Because it's not about us and our impressiveness, but God and his power. So I I think that's an encouraging point that we get here. So that's two of the things. What does God do? Firstly, he sends a prophet. Secondly, he recruits Gideon. And the third thing that happens is that God begins to restore Israel. And uh, interestingly, God does not jump straight to let's kill the Amalekites and let's kill the Midianites. The priority is not military first but spiritual first. Also, the priority is not national first but local first. It's quite interesting. What is Gideon's first role? As the newly appointed deliverer to fix up the spiritual life of his home. Okay, it's a small focus and not military. Now, it might sound easy actually, you know, he doesn't have to fight anyone and he doesn't have to um, do it on a large scale, but it's very difficult. What he's asked to do is to tear down an altar to Baal, which his father owns. And uh, Gideon's a bit afraid to do this. And we can see that he was right, right to be afraid to do it. So he does it at night time. And he does it with ten servants. So maybe he was talking down before how important he was. He does have ten servants. So he's got a, he's got a bit of status. So as he's 10, ten servants and they pull down the altar, they um, cut down the Asherah pole and they offer the old ox Bull on the um, of nap, on the altar. Now this is a, again a big sacrifice, right? I'm sure bulls were in high demand, and to, to sacrifice one like this is, would seem reckless. And so, um, the people wake up the next day and they see what's happened, and they they want blood. And the reason they want blood is because they think Baal. Has been defied. Baal will be angry. Baal will curse their crops. There will be divine retribution for this. And so, right, we're going to we have to kill. Uh, we have to kill Gideon. And Gideon's dad, who, as I said earlier, was the um, the the big guy in the town. Uh, the emphatic is used of him as well. The Ab- Abizarrite is, is used of him. He's the he's the, he's the head of the clan. Says so to the people. Well, if Baal um, is offended, he can kill He can kill my son. That's difficult logic to argue with, isn't it? And I think people would have been intrigued for a bit of time, like, I wonder will Gideon suffer a gruesome unexplained death? You know, will Baal kill him? You know, just watching him go about his everyday life and seeing, is this going to happen? And it doesn't, and so they give him a new name, Jerubbabel, something like that, which means uh, let Baal contend. They even rename him because of this incident. And um, <coughs> I think uh, it's important to, to um, comment here that Gideon's task, his first task as leader, was not to defeat the marauding foreigners, but to correct the spiritual problem in his own home. home first and then nation national. And uh, it was hard. I think the same is true of us. It's hard to fix things in the home. It's hard to prioritise the spiritual life of the home. And and tonight, this is sort of topical with the promises that um, the two pairs of parents have made tonight. It's the big problem in the book of Judges. It's the reason the cycle continues. Children are not taught about God and so the next generation doesn't follow him and the cycle continues, right? And so tonight it's important for us to stop and reflect on this. The importance of getting things right in the home. You know, it's its one thing to, to serve God in, in impressive ways outside of the home, but it needs to be in the home first. It's the hardest place to get it right, I think. Um, even simple things like Jen and I have been married for... A bit over six months now one of the hard things we've found is to pray together regularly don't know if you guys struggle with that as well if you're married it's a hard thing i remember talking to my, one of my mates recently and he said he's been married 10 years and he said he has really switched on christian guy and he says um we've tried so many things and they've 100 fa- of them have failed they haven't stopped trying they're trying different things but uh it's a struggle it's hard to get it right it's hard to prioritize the spiritual well-being of your home and whether you have your own family, whether you live with flatmates, whether you live with your parents. It's hardest to be a mature Christian in your home, I think. And there's a bit of a challenge here tonight, I think. Highlighted by the, problem, the problems of Israel and that they can't pass on their faith to the next generation. The challenge is, and the challenge that has been accepted tonight by Brad and Amy and Shereen Beck, is to get it right in the home first. The other thing to comment briefly on here is that we can't have two altars. I mean, that's really what's going on here. God says, "You've got an, there's an altar to Baal, there's an altar to me. You'll be erected. Only one can exist. We can't And so the altar to Baal goes. So that's the first step. It seems like a minor step. It seems like an insignificant step in the rescue of Israel from their impoverishment but it's the first step, and it's the one that God wants to be the first step. It's a surprising first step, I think. We're expecting um, a military victory, and that does come, but first God wants it to be right in the home. And I think, at the, you know, we, we uh, don't have respect for people, uh, no matter how gifted a preacher or whatever they are, if, if they haven't got it right in their home. And so we need, I think we need to um, take stock and ourselves uh, in this area. And having done that, Gideon does move on to more national and more military concerns. And we notice actually that while this whole story has been happening, uh, if we look at verse 33, that the Midianites and the Malachites have come for their yearly invasion. So they've turned up, the, the year has come, the time for them to come and take everything that Israel owns has come. And Gideon now blows a trumpet. And he calls all of his clan together. He sends messages to some of the other clans, not all of them, and that comes up next week. Actually, one of them gets a bit resentful that they didn't get invited. And um, these guys all gather ready, and it's like the eve of a battle. They're ready to fight. And then he has a crisis of confidence. You notice that? After all that's happened, he has a crisis of confidence. And he says to God, "Um, can I have a sign? I know you told me to do this but can I have a sign and so he asks him he puts it like a fleece like a um a sheepskin basically on the ground in the morning when i come back i want this i want this to be wet and the ground to be dry and god in his patience has no problems and that that's what happens and the next day they come back the ground's dry the sheepskin the fleece is wet um, the problem with it, uh, that request actually is that it's not it's not actually that miraculous. Um I was reading up on this and there are people who, who gain water for their for their to support their lifestyle through this method. That you can actually due to condensation and evaporation, you know, you can actually gain a significant amount of water from a fleece overnight. And Gideon realizes this and things, uh, should have asked the other way around. And he um and he's very sheepish in the way he does it. Um that pun. He, he asked God to do the reverse, which is much more um, unnatural, I guess. And um, the way he asked God, sort of like, Oh, God, I know you've decided to do this, and I know this is wrong, and I know I should just trust you, but please, can I have one more sign? And God graciously, patiently says, Okay, does it. Quite interesting, I think, again, to point out the weakness. Of Gideon. He's the guy who's about to accomplish incredible things with a crisis of of faith, a crisis of confidence the night before his big victory. And um, this is not, I think, uh, an instruction manual on how to find out what God wants you to do in life. um, With fleeces. In fact, Gideon already knew what God wanted him to do. He already knew. He just didn't want to do it. He was just not confident to do it. So what I think it does show is that it's OK to express your doubts to God if you have them. We all have doubts from time to time, and I think it's appropriate to express them to God, and God is patient, God is kind, and God helps us to overcome our doubts. So they're the three things that God does into our own difficult um, suffering scene of Israel. He sends a prophet he recruits Gideon and he begins to restore Israel now admittedly we haven't restored too much tonight, we've just fixed an altar and we've rallied the troops you're going to have to wait till next week um, to find out what happens it's a good story, I can recommend it come back next week and find out So, a bit of a cliffhanger there for you Um, I do want to finish though by asking what does it mean what do we learn from this story there's lots of things to say and we've said a few along the way but I think the most common uh, theme that comes, recurs through this narrative is God showing kindness to people who don't deserve it. God showing kindness to people who don't deserve it. Israel, the nation who have tried to divorce God and remarry five times, to reject him and ask for him back, reject him and ask for him back, reject. Do they deserve another chance? No, but God gives them one. Gideon. Does he deserve patience when he gets a bit sassy with God and says, where is God, to God's face? When he makes God wait hours while he cooks a meal just because he's not confident to believe in him? When he asks God for multiple signs again and again, I know you told me, but I don't really believe. Can you help? Give me another sign. God shows kindness in each instance to the undeserving. Grace, actually, grace. Kindness to people who don't deserve it. That's the dominant theme in tonight's story. I want to finish by saying that that's how God still relates to his people today. When we read the New Testament, when we see what Jesus did, that's how God relates to his people today. There's a sense in which none of us deserve anything from God. We all reject God in a sense. We all don't have time for him. We all don't respect him. We the glory he, he deserves. We don't care what he thinks about things. We don't have time for him. We'd rather he didn't interfere with our lives and tell us what to do. We'd rather just do our own thing. There's a sense in which we are all undeserving of God's kindness, a very real sense. And yet God has shown great kindness to all people. He sent his son Jesus to be punished instead of us. And so who puts their faith in Jesus can be saved. Jesus is a superior Gideon. And I want to finish actually by a ver- uh, um, with a verse from the Bible, and uh, it's going to come up on a the screen. There's a verse from Romans which just states this okay. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, undeserving why we're rejecting God, why we didn't want to have a bar of him, why we just want to live our own lives, that's when Jesus died for us. Kindness to the undeserving. And so can can I finish tonight by encouraging you, if you're a Christian, what a great God we have, one who's kind when we don't deserve it, who continues to be patient with our weaknesses, to choose people who have no gifts and use them in extraordinary ways. Here tonight, and maybe Christianity is not something you thought about much before. Can I? Can my challenge to you be um, to think about that idea of grace? That none of us deserve anything from God, but that He offers so much kindness and forgiveness to us freely. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, even in this ancient story of conquest and oppression, that we can at work for people who don't deserve it and Father we don't deserve it either we don't deserve your kindness but thank you that you give it to us and that you've given it to us much more significantly uh, in the death of your son and we pray that we would uh, come to appreciate and accept uh, him and and that we would come to rely on your grace and we pray these things in Jesus name Amen